Welcome to the third of the professor's rounds in the 2017 MJHS NHPCO Interprofessional Webinar Series in Palliative Care. My name is Dr. Mona Patel. I'm the Associate Fellowship Director of the Hospice and Palliative Care Fellowship at MJHS Hospice and Palliative Care. Today, I'd like to introduce Dr. Joan Tino, who is a professor of medicine in the Division of Gerontology and Geriatrics at the Cambia Palliative Care Center of Excellence at the University of Washington. She is also adjunct professor of health services, policy and practice at Brown University. Dr. Tino has been extraordinarily influential as a health services researcher, as well as an advocate. She has led the effort in the design of the study to understand prognoses and preferences for outcomes and risks of treatments, the support trial, intervention analysis, and was lead author in 12 publications from that research effort. This ranged from the role of advanced directives to describing the dying experience of seriously ill and older adults. Her subsequent research continued in the areas of measurement and evaluations of interventions to improve the quality of medical care for seriously ill and dying patients. She was also the lead investigator in a research effort to create a toolkit of instruments to measure care at the end of life, the time study, an effort that led to the creation of the Family Evaluation of Hospice Care, which is currently being used by hospices across the nation and internationally to examine the quality of hospice care. In conjunction with the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, NHPCO, she created a data repository of nearly half a million surveys starting from 2005 that provided benchmarks and research to improve hospice care. She has served on numerous advisory panels, including the Institute of Medicine, the World Health Organization, and the American Bar Association, and has written more than 210 research articles focused on end-of-life care and care of the seriously ill, vulnerable patient. In 2009, she was actually awarded the NHPCO Distinguished Research Award and has been named a pioneer in palliative medicine by AHPM. The topic today is embracing complexity at the close of life, why advanced directives are not enough. Dr. Tino? Thank you. And it's really delightful to spend part of my afternoon and part of your early evening today, depending on what time zone you are. Um, I'd like to also acknowledge uh, that this article is based on a publication from the New England Journal of Medicine in February and acknowledge my co-author, Susan Toll, who helped me very much in thinking about this issue. I just need to disclose to you that funding from this, um, uh, this publication was based on the National Institute of Health, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Investigator Award, and Dr. Portnoy, who is unable to be with us today, has uh, a funding relationship with AstraZeneca Pharmaceutical LP. No other planning committees have any disclosures. Let me just tell you about how we're gonna spend the next 45 minutes. At the end of the session, I hope you will appreciate that advanced directives are important, but not sufficient to change end-of-life care in the United States. Rather, complex interventions are needed that are aimed from the individual to state government to even the federal government. I'm hoping at the end of the session, you'll be able to apply a life cycle approach to advanced care planning in your own practice. 
appreciate eliciting preferences and value is only a very first important step. That key is formulating a contingency plan to honor a patient's goal. And in using a case from Oregon, I want to help you understand the complex set of interventions that made it possible to honor a patient's wishes and think about how you might apply them in your own practice setting. So, key questions we're going to cover today is why advanced directives are not enough? Why do we need to embrace the complexity of end-of-life care to ensure care is person-centered and family-centered? Key points, decisions at the end the close of life are complex social interactions. We need to take a life cycle approach to advanced care planning, and we need to link goals to their plan. Third, multifaceted interventions are needed. And I'm going to use the case of dementia and mechanical ventilation. This is a research that um, was published in JAMA in 2016. Now, after those discouraging results, I'm going to tell you that change is possible. But we need multifaceted, sustained interventions that are going to change the culture and make it easy for healthcare providers to do the right thing. So let's start. So I think really I'm probably speaking to an audience who understands this so well. Uh, these are some of the words of Dame Cicely Saunders, and she talks about dying remains in the memories of those who live on. And indeed, this is a picture of the funeral of my own mother in 2008, and I'm going to be using her story to illustrate some points around advanced care planning. So first of all, let's start off with talking about complex social interactions. And as a screenshot today, I'm going to use one of my most favorite patients that I took care of for nine years, Norman, and my dog Java, who was a pet therapy dog, who visited Norma just about two days before he died. And this is when we made the decision to stop uh, IV antibiotics, and he died two days later. But let me tell you why I think this is a complex social interaction that we need to think very carefully about how we intervene and communicate to improve care at the close of life. So first of all, let me tell you a story. And I think one of the things that makes us good scientists is taking care of patients who teach us. And this is a patient who taught me a lot. Her name was Maddie. She was a 49-year-old woman with stage four colorectal cancer. She had short bowel syndrome and she was refusing to increase her morphine. I received an urgent call from the hospice nurse who said, can you convince her to increase her morphine? So here's the things that I did first. I listened to the patient and listened to her story. Actually, before listening to the patient, one of the things I observed just when walking into the room was this person was totally in control of her environment. She had perfectly arranged her bed so that she would get maximal light throughout the entire day. So that told me this is someone who was very much in control. And indeed, she was a landscape designer and light and outdoor spaces were very important. When I listened to her story, I heard about reasons why 
she was not ready to increase her morphine. And indeed, she was one of those people who had battled cancer. And one of the reasons she battled so hard was because she had a 13-year-old son who she desperately didn't want to leave. But now that she realized that she was at the end of life, she had some important things that she wanted to accomplish in terms of closure. And I recognize that that was an unbelievably valuable, important time for her. I did explain to her that what a wise hospice nurse told me is the body is the final teacher and that she would need to tell me when she would want me to more aggressively treat her uh, pain and dysmia with uh, sub-Q morphine. I called Blue Cross Blue Shield. I advocated for treating her dehydration from short bowel and the hospice inpatient unit and explained to him why it was so important that she had this time. Later, as she was able to accomplish what she wanted to do with her son in terms of closure, she told me it was time to start the opiates and go to a higher dose and she died two days later. Another patient, George and Jean. Well, this is a story of a new admission to the hospital with non-Hodgkin lymphoma who's failed multiple lines of treatment. Patient was now in septic shock. Her daughter noted that she was tired and George, her husband, wanted her to keep trying. Resident calls you at two o'clock in the morning and says, is it okay to transfer her to the ICU? And I said, you know what? I think I should come in and let's have a more in-depth conversation about what the goals of care are. So I was very fortunate to be able to get to the hospital very quickly and was able to have a family meeting with a spiritual advisor who was present with me for that meeting. What I asked them was a key question is, what did the patient mean when she said she was tired? And she told me that she was ready to give up. She was ready to die, but she knew her husband wasn't ready. And then I think we had a long talk with her husband that one of the final gifts of love is letting go and letting someone make that choice. So finally, the third case I'd like to present to you today, in this case, we're gonna go into more in depth. Edith is a 94-year-old woman with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease who's option dependent, is at home with 24-hour care. And obviously this is a patient who's in Oregon. And of course her son lives in Rhode Island. She has pneumonia and a fall that results in hip fracture. Uh, her nurse's aide, who is providing 24-hour care, calls the emergency medical service. The EMS, unlike what would happen in Rhode Island, calls the pulse registry and finds out that the patient had completed a pulse form that notes her preferences towards intubation. They transport the patient to the hospital because of the concern with the hip fracture and a hospital ER clerk alerts the trauma surgeon of the patient's preferences. The trauma surgeon reaches out to the son in Rhode Island, reviews the pulse form, and they make a decision for comfort care only and transfer the patient back home with hospice services. It's really not that simple. First of all, to complete the pulse form, a physician had to counsel the patient 
and had to make sure that the form was completed in a valid manner. Furthermore, over time, that post form had to be updated with the change in status and the physician encouraged her to speak with her son. They submitted that form to the registry and the EMS had to be under law permission to be able to call the registry and be able to honor that form. Another important thing that happened is when the patient did show up in the emergency room, the ER clerk knew how to pull the post form from the electronic medical record and present it to the trauma surgeon who discussed with the son who lived in the Ocean State in Rhode Island. So I think what I'm trying to illustrate with those three cases is that there's a complex set of interventions that occur to improve end-of-life care and to have a patient's wishes be honored. It's not as simple as going to an attorney's office and completing an advanced directive or completing a living will. Rather, there has to be a complex set of events that come together to ensure that the patient's wishes are honored. This leads to a second part of the talk that I'd like to present to you today. It's a life cycle and linking goals to a plan of care. So let's go to our next phase of the talk. So in the National Academy of Medicine 2014 report on care at the end of life, they talked about a life cycle approach to advanced care planning. And they made the following points. Based on where someone is in their disease trajectory, and among the disease trajectories they considered were people with a chronic illness that was being managed, a chronic illness and a functional decline so that the condition is worsening, or a third, a chronic illness, cognitive decline, and now having hospitalizations, and the fourth is an acute event on chronic illness, actively dying, and referred to hospice, that there's very different actions that should occur regarding advanced care planning. So let's take the, the healthy 65-year-old who has mild hypertension, and they come into your office. What should you, as a practicing provider, do in terms of counseling them about advanced directives? Um, and what should you do as part of your advanced care planning? My advice would be to complete at least a durable power of attorney, to name a proxy decision maker, and then to state specific wishes if they're important to the patient's values and their life held. You know, wishes could be around the potential for sudden death um, or could be issues around uh, outcome states the patient would want to avoid. For example, I wouldn't want to be in a persistent vegetative state. But under this life cycle approach, the key thing is really naming a proxy decision maker. As you patient progresses over time and they have chronic illness that starts impacting your function, then is when you want to start making the transition to talking about specific wishes if they choose. And then once you have specific wishes, you may want to update the care plan to reflect those wishes. Now, as people start having cognitive decline, further hospitalizations with functional decline, I think then it's really you want to get sort of very specific preferences updated and really have them reflected in the plan of care. Now, even when the patient is dying uh, and being admitted to hospice, you're still doing advanced care planning. You know, for example, one of my favorite questions to ask patients when 
I do the admitting history and physical exam for people coming into hospice is to state what is really the obvious. This must be a really scary time for you. Can you tell me whether you have any concerns? And sometimes if it's a patient with COBD, the concern can be around um, uh, breathing and not feeling like they're going to suffocate while dying. And then that leads to a specific discussions about how we treat dyspnea while dying and how we balance the use of opiates and maintaining consciousness. So let me just use the example of my own mother's death to show you how advanced care planning occurs over a long period of time. Indeed, in 2001, she was healthy, celebrating her birthday, and was still ambulatory and getting up and walking around. And in the later state, she um, had some problems with um, hospitalization, started having functional impairment, and as you can see in this picture, was starting to use a walker. That's when we started involving case management to maintain her at home. Then as she got more sick and had episodes of confusions, um, she actually ended up being placed in a nursing home stay, and we actually enrolled her in what's called an ISEP program, which allows them to focus on keeping the patient in the least restrictive setting of care rather than hospitalized. So this would allow them to treat pneumonias and infections in the nursing home rather than sending her to the acute care hospital each time. Then finally, she had an episode of a cerebral basilar accident that resulted in her being unable to swallow and she was in a hospice referral and died three days later. Now, even though I've been a hospice medical director for 18 years, she really wasn't qualified for hospice until she reached the point of having a stroke that diminished her ability to swallow. She never had a prognosis of six months until that acute catastrophic event. And I think that's one thing we have to keep in mind that while we would all love to ensure that patients have prolonged hospice stays, people still have catastrophic events that result in a short hospice length of stay. So let's just go through the case a little bit more and talk about this a little more in depth. So for my mom in 2001, she was living at home. You can see a picture of her celebrating her birthday. She was very happy, was having a great birthday cake from a wonderful bakery in Rhode Island called Patiche. And she had some chronic illnesses with some impairment in mobility, but was happy at that point. She had a proxy decision maker, didn't have really clear preferences, and really uh, had uh, just the durable power of attorney for healthcare. As her disease progressed, she now had a DPOA where she stated specific preferences. And indeed for her, she at that time, which was in about 2004, 2005, stated she would never want a feeding tube for an event where she was unable to recover. And I think what we also did as she started having this functional decline was we enhanced the amount of management that she was receiving to receive supportive services so that she could remain at home and have very good time visiting with my wonderful and beautiful niece who is now 21 years old. But as things progressed, she developed having chronic illnesses, recurrent hospitalizations, and she had episodes of delirium usually from a urinary tract infection, 
became a safety concern at home and we decided on nursing home placement. In discussion with her at that time, we updated her advanced care plans to include a do not hospitalize order. Now, the do not hospitalize order wasn't enough. We needed to have a plan in place so that when she had these episodes of infection, on how we were going to be able to treat those infections in the nursing home that she was in at this time. And we had a wonderful program, which is called an Institutional Special Needs Program. And this is a program that lets you combine both Medicaid and Medicare funding, and was able to focus on increasing the payment to the nursing home to allow them to maintain the patient in the nursing home rather than have this cycle of churning between the nursing home and the acute care hospital. So she was able to get, receive all her care from that point by remaining in the nursing home and never had a hospitalization. And then unfortunately she had an acute event on top of this chronic illness and that acute event basically resulted in her being in a coma and resulting in her being unable to swallow. At that point, we had very specific plans of care. We honored her wishes not to have a feeding tube, and we also ended up having to use sub-Q medication administration in the nursing home to treat seizures. She was enrolled in hospice. She was on GIP level of care because she had frequent seizures, and we ended up having to use an Ativan drip to control her seizures in the nursing home. We're very fortunate to have a very excellent nursing home who worked with us and worked and used these medications. She dies after five days. And this is actually, um, I think one of the things I should tell you is I've been a photographer now for almost since 16, 15 and document everything. And this is a picture of her nursing home room with my older niece. And this really for me was the gift of hospice. She was seizure free, she was comfortable, we were able to hold vigil at her bedside, not having to witness uh, seizures or other symptoms. And she was GIP level of care for all five days. And we were very fortunate to receive bereavement support. What I'm hoping this case will illustrate to you is how complex and how things evolve over time and how based on changes in her conditions, we updated her wishes and then finally, when she was actively dying or when she had a functional decline and was having multiple hospitalizations and not going to the hospital, we were not just documenting what her wishes were, but we were actually linking it to a plan of care to ensure her wishes were honored. And for me, one of the key parts of this plan of care was making sure that the financial arrangements aligned with keeping her in the nursing home and she got the needed care in the nursing home. We were able to do that because of a program for people with both Medicare and Medicaid called ICEPT, which allows the nursing home to have additional financial support to maintain and treat illnesses in the nursing home, as opposed to always shipping these people to the acute care hospital. So, let me summarize a little bit. We've been through two segments of this program, and let me tell you what I see as the overall strategy. And I should let you know that throughout this presentation, I have used pictures of various relatives, and this is my grandmother. As you can tell, I look like the Polish side of my family, and this is my Polish grandma um, that took this picture when I was 12 years old. 
Um, let's talk about that overall strategy. So first of all, what I'd like to do is understand where the patient is in their disease course. And you know, have they reached a sort of critical turning point? And you may ask, well, what do I mean by critical turning point? Well, I mean when the number of bad days really start outnumbering the number of good days, where the person starting to have a weariness with life, a time point when they really are uh, you know, just finding a real struggle and there's not something easily treatable in terms of palliative medicine. And I think this is really sort of an individual choice. Always, you want to communicate, negotiate, understand what the goals of care, and then third, the key part of this is to develop a contingency plan to honor those preferences. I learned this very early in 1990 when I first started practicing medicine in Washington, D.C. I had this wonderful advanced care planning document done, and this wonderful patient who had COPD, who got short of breath at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I quickly found out eight blocks away from the White House, nobody will deliver opiates to someone in the middle of the night because of safety concerns with that environment. That taught me the importance of not only understanding who the person is, where they are in living with this disease, establishing their goals of care through sense of communication, but really the importance of creating a contingency plan to ensure that their wishes are gonna be honored. So this is more of a comprehensive strategy of advanced care planning. It's just not completing the document. It's not something you do in an attorney's office. It's not a one-time thing. It's something you do over the course of that medical disease, and sometimes it's shared decision-making, sometimes it's talking about future states in terms of advanced care planning. But it's more of a process, and key to the process, and key to honoring a patient's choices and wishes is linking it to the care plan, anticipating what the problems are going to be and developing a plan to ameliorate those problems, especially those that are going to occur at 2 o'clock in the morning. So now let's go on to a third phase of this talk and talk about multifaceted interventions at the close of life. So I'm a health services researcher, and I've been really thinking about how are we doing? Well, one thing that we've been very successful is we've increased access to hospice services. But my concern is, we've, while we increase access to hospice services, those services are coming much too late. And this is an infographic that uh, was based on an article we did in JAMA. And what it shows over time, while more people are dying at home, the problem is more people are having a late transition in the last three days of life. And a lot of those late transitions are to hospice. Another concern is over time, the number of times that people are in an ICU in the last month of life has dramatically increased over time with this data from 2000, 2007 and 2009, excuse me, 2005 and 2009. Another piece of evidence that we just recently published in in JAMA Internal Medicine is looking at people with end-stage dementia and how often those people are on a mechanical ventilation during hospitalization. And we were quite surprised to find that for people admitted with pneumonia or septicemia, there's almost been a three times increase 
and the rate of people being on a mechanical ventilator during that hospitalization. The only thing that is a flat line here is the, is the one-year mortality, which is quite high in this population. So I look at this data and have to say this is really probably a failure of advanced care planning and a failure of our healthcare system to ensure that patients are getting care that they want. Recall that with my colleague, Susan Mitchell, we published an article in New England Journal in 2009 that asked patients about what their primary goal of care is, and 96% of those patients said comfort. Well, here we have an increasing rate of mechanical ventilation, and I don't think that's consistent with a preference pattern of focusing on comfort. So let me ask you and just tell you who are these persons. Well, they're advanced dementia patients in the nursing home. 98% are bed-bound. A third have a feeding tube. The remainder have dysphagia and are on an altered diet, and 70% have ADL7 or higher. This is not a population that would want to be on mechanical ventilator. Indeed, as I mentioned previously, 96% of the family stated they wanted persons to focus on comfort. So what did we do? With this, we examined every admission of a nursing home resident with advanced dementia. And when I say advanced dementia, these are people who can't walk, can't talk, can't speak, and majority of them are having trouble swallowing. And we documented the invasive use of mechanical ventilation, meaning you had to be intubated, and we looked at survival and costs, and we did this in a hospital fixed effect. So we called the hospital part of the equation constant, look at what the trends over time are. And here's what we found. So one of the questions that people asked about this paper was, well, isn't it just that you're sending sicker people to the hospital? And so what we actually did was we came up with a way of using federal assessments to look at the two denominator and look at how this was increasing when you looked at the denominator of people who are in a nursing home. And when you look at that true denominator, the use of mechanical ventilation nearly doubled during this time period. So a lot happened between 2000 and 2013. We now have intensivists, we now have hospitalists, primary care patients are less likely to see the patient in the hospital. And ICU use for this cohort went from 6% to 20%. Also, there's sort of almost like a field of dreams hypothesis in that the number of ICU beds increased from 22 beds to 34.2 beds for, for population. And we, as we discussed in the paper, the increase in ICU beds was a hospital that increased the ICU beds also increased the rate of uh, mechanical ventilation of these patients. So, what our key findings were, increased mechanical ventilation, no change in survival, and this care is quite costly, 95 million for care of less than 4,000 patients in 2013. So this got me to thinking about regional variation and trying to understand how things vary across the United States. And I was very fortunate as I moved out to um, state of Washington, I reached out to Susan Toll, had done a lot of um, a, a lot in Oregon, and wanted to talk to her about how she made such a big change in Oregon and really to understand how she went from a state that virtually never uses feeding tubes, rarely uses mechanical ventilation in people in advanced dementia. Indeed, one of the things we looked at 
as is shown on this graphic, is we look at the change in Oregon, shown in blue, compared to a state that's very similar in sociodemographics, very similar in religious preference, compared to the United States. And what we can see is Oregon has the vast majority of people dying at home, um, have a very high rate of hospice in the home setting, and has a very lower rate of ICU use in the last 30 days. And then one of the things I was really interested in is when someone slips into the hospital, they're very quick at ensuring that that person is discharged home in the last 30 days of life. So we talked about a case, Edith, and recall earlier, I mentioned Edith, she was a 94-year-old with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. She had oxygen dependent at home, 24-hour care. Her son lives in Rhode Island and she had a per diem caregiver with her. She had pneumonia followed with a hip fracture. Unlike what would happen in Rhode Island, EMS pulls the pulse form, notes her preferences, honors them, transported the ER to have her hip fracture assessed. Uh, when the patient arrives into the ER, the hospital ER clerk alerts the trauma surgeon that the patient has a pulse form. He reaches out to the son in Rhode Island, reviews the patient's wishes, and they make a decision to um, send her home with hospice services. This easily could have gone to having the hip fracture repaired to a lengthy post-acute stay and having the patient still die anyway. So Susan and I talked about what were the things that she'd done over a 20-year period of time that led and changed Edith's dying experience? Well, first of all, she educated not only individual persons, but also educated healthcare professionals. But one of the things I want you to do when you look at this list, education is one component of, of four big, large changes she made. She also made changes in state government. So she created a registry that allowed pulse forms to be found and then also wrote regulations that allows EMS to honor that pulse form. Um, she also made local system changes. I think one of the key things with this patient is they, they ramped up the ability of local hospice for services for people dying at home so that they could make a timely transition, that the patient didn't have to wait in the acute care hospital. And another thing that they did was they created local champions and a state coalition who they, these local champions were able to solve system problems, remove regulatory barriers, and we're very nimble to respond to concerns. So I, I think what I'm trying to illustrate with this case is it wasn't just the completion of a pulse form, but it was a complex, multifaceted set of interventions that occurred over time in Oregon that led to this one patient being able to die at home and have her wishes honored. So my question, is it the pulse form? Pulse form was important for documenting the patient's wishes, creating a vehicle so that they're easily found, but it was not sufficient. So it's just not that bright pink form in the, the, the top of the chart. I don't know what we're doing with EMR days, what color we're using, but uh, it's just not the pulse form. And indeed, this is something that I've been writing about since 1993. And 
often I've been using the famous quotation from H.L. Mencken, who is a journalist in Baltimore, uh, wrote for the, I believe the Sun-Times there, and he had one of my favorite uh, solutions. For every human problem, there's a easy solution that's neat, plausible, and wrong. Or another time he wrote, for every human problem, there's a solution which is simple, neat, and wrong. And I think early on, when I started writing these editorials, my concern was that people were saying, oh, once they signed the advanced directive, that's it, we're done. And I would argue that is not it, we're not done. We still have a lot of very critical thinking to occur to assure that advanced directive is going to be honored. So let's make some key points here. First of all, the Oregon intervention was a multifaceted intervention that involved education, educating patients, educating local healthcare providers on sensitive communication. It was also finding local champions within that community to champion that effort and to work with the healthcare system to solve problems that were unique to that local environment. It removed policy barriers. So when Edith's caregiver called 911, it was okay for the EMS to a, find her pulse form and to honor that pulse form. So removing that regulatory barrier was important. Edith was only able to go home to hospice from the emergency room because there was a hospice that had the capacity to do that admission, to make sure all the equipment was there and make sure she received the right drugs to keep her comfortable. And then I think another thing I didn't mention, but I really do want to emphasize, is any system that you have in place, you have to do ongoing monitoring of the quality of care, and you need to sustain that intervention over time. The post form is a tool, not an end of itself. I think the other thing I've tried to point out over this talk is this is a process, it's not a static event. Important life events occur in the last 10 days of life. Symptoms increase, patients may have seizures, Patients may have difficulty with their breathing. And for the normal person who is on Medicare, about 55% of those patients have one or more transitions in that last 10 days of life. People die of catastrophic, unpredictable events. So we need to have a variety of tools that can be tailored to meet the needs of that person and different disease trajectories. So, it's just not completing that advanced directive, but it's thinking more broadly from the system. And let's just go back to the slide for a second, thinking about local intervention, intervening with the person and their healthcare professional, looking at state government, understanding the local healthcare system, the capacity, and helping get local champions at state coalitions to do the right thing. Okay, now, now that I've you know, presented some data on mechanical ventilation and what's happening over time with mechanical ventilation, I do want to end on a little bit of a positive note. And my message to you is you can make change. Change is possible. It's not going to be quick. You've got to be in it for the long haul. But you can fundamentally improve how we care for seriously ill and dying patients. Let me give you some examples. Okay, seat belts. When I was a young child, the 62 
Chevy car did not have safety belts. Now you can't virtually get into a car without buckling up, and that's made a difference in terms of mortality. When I was born, no, fathers were not allowed in the, in the birthing unit, but now it's a family event. Smoking went from flying in an airplane where half the plane was smoking, the other half was not, and I would argue that the way they recirculate air, you, everybody was smoking. And now we virtually have made a huge public change in smoking. And I think Oregon, through a lot of efforts of some wonderful folks there, have made a big difference on how we care for seriously ill and dying patients. And I think a lot of that is educational interventions, also strong primary care unit, strong availability of hospice services. Let me give you some data examples. Well, people often tell me that Oregonians are just not like the rest of the United States. And I'd like to present some data to you that looks at the decline of tooth feeding for dementia patients. I've been very fortunate to work with a wonderful group of uh, collaborators at Brown University and Harvard, where we've looked at dementia patients with end-stage dementia. And what we've seen over time is actually it has decreased. It's decreased by nearly 50%. So change is possible. Finally, a quote from Albert Einstein. The world as we created it is a process of our thinking. It cannot be changed without changing our thinking. So in conclusion, I hope I can convince you that sustained multifaceted interventions are needed. Education is so important, but not sufficient. Don't stop educating. You need to have triggers that relate to patient goals. You need to have the right tools that can respond to varied patient circumstances. You want quality measures that emphasize that care is consistent with those goals, but we don't want those quality measures to dictate that a patient has to do something in a certain time. We want them to take, undertake advanced care planning and to undertake these discussions when they're ready to have these conversations. We want regulations aligned with quality, and most important, we want a payment system aligned with quality. It's time to put the care back into healthcare. It's no longer acceptable to not elicit and respect patient preferences. We need to eliminate the silo and we need to incentivize coordination of care. We need to measure demand and pay for performance and we want care that's competent, patient-centered, coordinated and compassionate. And I thank you uh, with that today and I will turn it over for a Q&A session if you have any questions or if you have areas of disagreement. And I think I have allowed us about 10 or 12 minutes for doing that. Thank you very much. Our first question is, Dr. Tino, what are some of the challenges in communicating these care preferences with healthcare providers as a patient transitions from different care settings? For example, from hospital to home, or vice versa? You know, my biggest challenge is I will send the medical record from the outpatient setting to the inpatient setting and it's always lost in transition. And hopefully as we get electronic medical record systems to talk to each other, people will be able to look at that. But my biggest problem right now is the fact that EMR systems don't communicate 
and paper for some reason is just like socks going into the washing machine. They get lost in this black hole. And so p information that you convey on patients' wishes get lost in that black hole. So what I really try to do is when I send someone to the emergency room, I really try to follow up an hour later just to check in to make sure they got the paperwork and to see if they have any questions. Thank you. Our next question is, should there be a more thorough menu on the MOLST or POLST forms? In other words, how do we best document these patient preferences clearly in the medical record? Sort of a follow-up to your um, EMR uh, answer. You know, I think that's a really good question. Um, and I think here's my concern. Um, sometimes you can get too complex on the number of forms and, and the design of these forms. And my concern is with that complexity, you can have patients checking out preferences that are not consistent. And I, I don't want it to become like a Chinese menu where you're overwhelmed with the choices. So I really think what we need to do is almost take an approach that Apple has done to creating products is really making it easy so that you can open up and start your iPhone without reading the instruction manual. And then for those who want really more complexity, we allow for that. But really, let's get the basics down and do the basics well and make it easy for people to do the basics. So I would be opposed to really creating a complex set of choices or checklists. And rather, I would allow spaces for those people who have very clear preferences to outline them, but rather would want a form that is easy to read, easy to understand at a fifth to sixth grade level, and that people can fill it out and complete in such a way that we know that we're really understanding what their wishes are. Thank you for that. Um, another question is, how can the interdisciplinary team assist in clarifying some of these patient preferences? What would be your recommendations as a um, hospice medical director? You know, I think one of the things that any good interdisciplinary team is they find they really find out who has the best rapport with the patient and who really should take the lead in having that discussion. In some cases, it may be the nurse. In other cases, it may be the social worker and maybe in a few cases it will be the physician. And I think that's one of the things that I really respect and love about hospice is the ability to work with interdisciplinary teams and to have a group of people come together and think critically how to have these conversations, but even more important, how to create a care system that ensures that these preferences and values are honored. Another question is, how would you tackle um, a situation when there's family disagreement amongst family members about care preferences for a patient? Um, what are some um, potential ways to, uh, to address that? I think anytime you have disagreement, the first thing you should do is listen and understand what their perspectives are and listen and understand what their concerns are. And then I think you have to really do sensitive uh, communication and negotiation to really help resolve those areas of disagreement. Sometimes, you know, very rarely you can't resolve those and it really pays to have an ethics committee 
or had other resources uh, of people to come in to help you sort that out. But you know what, while we always talk about, when I lived on the East Coast, we always talked about the daughter from California. Um, those cases are really rare. The majority of families really try to make a very loving decision for their family members and really try to do their best under difficult circumstances. I think one of the things we should remember is we're not asking them to make the decision. We're asking them to give us information based on their understanding of who that person is and that we're jointly making a decision based on the understanding of that patient's wishes or that patient's values or based on who that patient is over their lifetime. Thank you. Um, in the meantime, do you have any um, parting thoughts or would you like to share any takeaways from the webinar, key points? No, I, I think it's just really, you know, if there's one key point here, it's really, this is a process that occurs over time. Even when you're admitting from hospice, you're asking about patient preferences and what their goals of care are. So often when I'm admitting someone into a hospice inpatient unit, the discussion comes around terminal sedation if I think there's going to be a chance that's going to be needed. Second of all, key in this whole process is to anticipating what the problems are and then creating a plan of care that will appropriately palliate those symptoms or deal with those problems. That's great. Thank you. Another question that came up is, uh, who would you recommend to have these discussions with patients and families? Would you recommend a uh, primary care physician or a palliative care physician, um, an oncologist, uh, for example? Any any guidelines with regards to that? You know, I think it really varies on the provider and their comfort with doing this. I think the person who often should be starting these conversations when someone is coming in for you know, a checkup and just asking about DPOA would be that primary care provider. But over time, you know, I think, unfortunately, we have somewhat of a fragmented healthcare system. And it may be the pad care physician or it may be the social worker on the oncology unit. Um, I think it's just important that whoever does that conversation has the training and the skills to make sure that they do it in a sensitive manner they communicate effectively, and then are able to bring it back to the team to develop a um, to develop a plan that honors that. I think one other question that people haven't asked me, but I wish they would ask me, is how do I choose a proxy? How do I choose who my uh, surrogate should be? And one of the things that I think about in this healthcare system that is totally fragmented, totally siloed, and really doesn't have coordination of care, I think the most important thing is to choose a proxy who's not afraid of white coats, who's not afraid to advocate for you, who's not afraid to talk with physicians and ask them hard questions. Because I think right now, time and time again, I've been doing focus groups with patients and family members and their number one concern is dealing with a healthcare system that's not person and family centered. So I think it's really important that when you choose your proxy, that they're available, they're not afraid of white coats, they take notes, 
and they can really advocate for you because it's a very important job. Thank you for that. Um, just a final question. You mentioned patients dying in an ICU. Mm -hmm. Is that a question you routinely ask in your practice, uh, where the patient's preference is to spend their last days? So what I like to do when I think advanced care planning goes over well is, one, we have some continuity of providers. And two, I, what I really, I don't like asking questions like, do you want to have CPR? Rather, I really want to understand where people are living with that illness. And then based on my understanding of where they are and living with that illness and have they reached a point where really the number of bad days despite our best efforts are outnumbering the number of good days and they want to focus more on staying at home. Then what I do is I, I try to summarize what I believe the patient's telling me and I ask them, is this what you mean? Do I understand? And then I say, based on your understanding, there's some recommendations I have so that we can honor your wishes. And then I outline those wishes. And I think often the number one thing is not going back to the acute care hospital. Um, I've always been amazed of what a acute care hospital can be sort of a vortex of things. And it's not a really good place for someone who's frail, older, with especially those with dementia. And I try at all costs to avoid having those people enter the acute care hospital. Someone's gonna enter an acute care hospital, I try to be very clear on what my goals are and what should be done and what the stopping point of leaving that acute care hospital. It looks like that's all the time we have for questions today. Thank you very much, Dr. Tino, for the webinar. Thank you. Thank you all for attending the webinar. I'd like to announce the next webinar, which will be an interdisciplinary case conference, and the title will be COPD, Dementia, and a Distressed Family. It's moderated by Dr. Russell Portnoy, who is the Executive Director of the MJHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care. He is also the Chief Medical Officer for MJHS Hospice and Palliative Care. This webinar will take place on Thursday, August 17th, 2017 at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Please make sure to complete your webinar evaluations. This will help us in planning future webinar sessions. And again, thank you very much for attending today.